He was a courageous person because that it showed when he left to just to leave. I think that's what really got him in trouble. Just dress, manner of speech, industrialism, his character and his vocabulary and his dress for the time frame got him in trouble. He, he was different. And when I say different, uh, he was well-dressed. He, he presented himself like uh, an educated, well-dressed man. And uh, whenever a black uh, presents himself that way, especially in the South, it's viewed as arrogance. America has promised the Negro real citizenship and a fair chance to make the best of himself. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. On March 12, 1948, Samuel Mason Bacon, 61 years old, boarded a bus in Akron, Ohio. He was returning to his roots in the South to be among family in his hometown of Natchez in Adams County, Mississippi. Samuel Bacon had moved to Akron six years earlier to live with his eldest daughter, Elizabeth Sampson, and her husband, Charlie. There he landed a job at the Firestone Rubber Company and earned a good income. Now, after six years, he hoped to reconcile with his wife, Fanny, who had remained in Fairfield, Alabama with their two younger daughters, Annie and Frances. En route, he was to stop in Natchez to visit family. Just 42 miles from his destination, with only a half-hour journey remaining, he was removed from the bus at Fort Gibson and taken into police custody by Town Marshal Stanton D. Coleman. While authorities claimed he was causing a disturbance, his real transgression was to refuse the bus driver's order to surrender his seat to a white passenger, even when other designated white seats were available. It was 1948 seven years before Rosa Parks' refusal to give her seat to a white man on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, which ignited a boycott and then a movement. In the meantime, Bacon's family were waiting at the bus stop in Natchez, eagerly awaiting his arrival. When passengers on the bus, which arrived without Samuel, told them he was removed by police for refusing to give up his seat, they began to fear for his safety. Held overnight in the Fayette jail on charges that have never been revealed, Bacon was found dead in his cell on the morning of March 15th, three days after he had left Ohio. Town Marshal Coleman had shot him at close range, once in the stomach and once in the chest. Coleman would claim that he shot Bacon in self-defense, when Bacon lunged at him with an axe that had been left in his cell. 
My name is Michael Melsner, and you are listening to The Red Record, a new podcast series named after Ida B. Wells' publication of the same name. This series will cover the case files of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University School of Law. Under the direction of project founder Margaret Burnham, CRRJ works with the families of victims of racial homicide between 1930 and 1970 in order to document the facts behind each killing and restore a measure of justice for those affected. In part one of this episode, we first obtain a picture of who Samuel Mason Bacon was, painted from the memories of his family. This picture is juxtaposed against the vitriol of those who at the time saw Bacon as a threat to the South's racial hierarchy, which ultimately led to his death and the exoneration of those responsible. In part two, we hear how decades later his family came together, discovered their shared history, and sought to heal their pain. Part 1, The Voice of Firestone. In 2013, CRRJ started an investigation into the case of Samuel Mason Bacon, led by Mary Gwynn, at the time a law student with the project. After extensive genealogical and archival research, CRRJ located the descendants of Samuel Bacon and sought to uncover the truth of what happened. One of those descendants, Darrell Broach, grandson of Samuel Bacon, was 15 years old and lived in Fairfield, a small town near Birmingham, Alabama, at the time his grandfather was killed. And how did you hear about your grandfather's passing? Uh, I came home from school uh, one day, and my grandmother and Aunt, um, and, and Aunt Frances, they were crying and they informed me what had occurred. They told us as children what had taken place and what was taking place. Uh, and they, they said that um, uh, Granddad was uh, left Akron, Ohio, coming to Fairfield to reunite with Mom, which is my grandmother, and he went through Natchez, Mississippi to see his relatives before coming to Alabama. And he went by bus. He got on the bus in Akron. And they said somewhere when that bus crossed the Mason-Dixon line, and I'm not sure where that was, the bus stopped and asked the passengers to uh, relocate, to get up from their seats and move to the back of the bus. Uh, they told me that my grandfather refused. And, at some, and the bus driver said that uh, he wasn't going to move the bus unless he moved and he called the police and the police came took him off the bus took him to jail and sometime during that night uh, they at some point they killed him and they said that he was killed because he attacked the guard uh, because of an axe that was left in the cell and my grandfather took that axe and attacked the officers that's what my grandmother told me as to why. And she says, I don't believe that that's what happened, but this is what they said happened. C. 
CRRJ also interviewed several other Bacon family members. Paul Lee Bacon, John Banks Bacon Jr., Willie Woods, Rosa Lee Stewart, Colada Bacon Washington, Lucille Bacon Anderson, and Earl and Henry Bacon. They gathered as a group to talk about the case. Warren Bacon, he uh, knew that uh, he was coming. And uh, my father, that was his uncle, and I was eight at the time, and he told us that um, uh, he wouldn't get up and give a white man his seat in Port Gibson. And the daddy said when they got to Fed, which is about 20 miles from uh, Port Gibson, they took him off in Port Gibson, that's where they killed him at. My father told us that our great uncle was, uh, at that time, if a white man or woman got on the bus, you had to give up your seat even if you had to stand up. And Daddy, uh, Uncle Sammy wouldn't get up. And they took him off and fed Daddy, say my father, which is Frank Bacon. So they took him off and fed and they killed him, which that was happening plenty during that time. Thank you if you didn't say yes, sir. Although family memories were based largely on what their elder relatives had told them, they were no stranger to Jim Crow customs in the South, having been exposed to them for much of their youth. At the time, did things like this happen a lot of the time? At that time, me as a child, we had to get up and give up our seat on the bus. I can remember that. If you was on the bus and somebody white got on, you had to keep moving back and moving back. When all the seats run out, you had to stand up. In the aftermath of the killing, Louis E. Burnham, executive secretary of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, wrote to Senator Robert A. Taft, Mississippi Governor Fielding Wright, Honorable Vito Mark Antonio of New York, and United States Attorney General Tom Clark in Washington, D.C. He demanded they take action to prosecute Town Marshal S.D. Coleman, as well as Sheriff Millsap Johnson. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People made a similar call for action. The Department of Justice acquiesced and directed the Federal Bureau of Investigation to send Special Agent George A. Gunter to Mississippi to determine the facts of the case. For the basis of his report, among the persons he interviewed was James H. Minninger, the bus driver who had called upon law enforcement to arrest Samuel Bacon. Minninger stated to Gunter that Samuel had stood in the white section of the bus declared himself the voice of Firestone and that he had asked Bacon to keep quiet. Other witnesses corroborated the driver, claiming that Bacon appeared to be intoxicated and that he was pushing other passengers. Bacon's family saw this FBI report as entirely contrary to his true character, with his daughter Elizabeth describing him as a hard-working man would sass nobody and insist his children treat others with respect. 
All of his children would write letters to the Department of Justice contradicting the statements of Minninger and the other passengers. The true motive for the killing of Samuel Bacon were obvious to his grandniece, Lucille Bacon Anderson. I would say someone coming from the north down to the south, from my experience, if you had left here to get away from as much Jim Crow as you could, then you would be living different. You would be doing things different. So if you were sitting anywhere on the bus in Akron, Ohio, and you come back here and somebody asks you to get up, you'd probably say no. For Bacon's great-nephew, Paul Lee Bacon, it was Samuel's clothing that led to him being targeted. The experiences that one would have here, now of them, would never allude to what the experiences were in the 1940s when Uncle Samuel left. When he returned, he was, of course, excited and proud to be coming home to show his family and tell them how well he was doing, maybe even invite some to go back with him. And he was a well-dressed man, meaning that he had on a tie, shirt and tie. And because of that, when he got down this way wearing a shirt and tie, that gave him a title more or less of what you can, some would consider to be an uppity nigger or negro. The crucial question remained. When Samuel Bacon was asked to give up his seat, why did he refuse? What do you think made him to stand his ground? Uh, being a bacon myself, the bacon in him. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, would, I, I stood my ground. I remember telling a uh, uh, white lady that I wasn't going to say yes ma'am to her. And I meant that. I meant the bacons are very, very proud people. Very good-hearted people. But they will stand their ground if they have to, even if it means they deal. As pervasive as instances of racial violence were in the South, so too was the tendency of the Southern press to distort the official narrative in order to justify the perpetrator's actions. Samuel Bacon's case was no exception, with the Natchez Democrat reporting that on the bus he was raising a disturbance, and using abusive language. I don't know if you were familiar with uh, the way it was reported in the papers. I have some articles of that. And at the time, I'm sure you can tell that there was a bit of bias. <laughs> it was a lie, just playing out lies. There's no way they was going to put uh, not even a black woman in jail with an axe in there. That just was a lie. They killed him because they felt that he was, the way he was well-dressed, dressed, well-groomed, and um, he probably had traveling checks and stuff on him, and they just felt this is an uppity nigga. So they killed him. And you didn't have to do nothing for them to kill you and one back there during that time. On, Lucille, and one of them, I got read, I think it was some deposit slips. I said he did have good money. Darrell agreed that his grandfather's death had nothing to do with an axe, but was in retaliation for his insistence, peaceably, on retaining his seat on the bus. Uh, he got on the bus and said anywhere in Akron, Ohio, 
and he, I could see him saying, no, I'm not going to move. I can, I can see him saying that, but not arguing about it. I'm not fighting about it. I'm not going to move. I think, matter of fact, and that uh, would not be tolerated by the whites, especially a white police officer, you see. And I, they took him off the bus at some point and killed him as a result of his attitude. So his attitude is what got him into problem. So they made a, an example out of him, showing... Out of him and any black, you know. Th this was just a normal way of life for them. And thousands upon thousands of blacks have been killed. Not necessarily as a result of a bus ride, but just looking a white person in the eye and talking to him. You see? Uh, refusing to say yes, sir, or no, sir. Sure. No, my, my grandfather didn't have to do anything but present himself, and that was aggravation to the average white. Darrell recalled his family's interaction with an agent sent by Francis Perry of the Southern Negro Youth Congress to independently investigate their case. After his death, there was a black investigator uh, who approached uh, my, uh, my uh, aunt and asked them if they wanted him to pursue an investigation. Aunt Love told me this. And they said no, not to. But they said no out of fear of that black man's life. The one who asked, do you want me to investigate this? And they said no because of what, the, what they thought would happen to that man. And that's one of the reasons why it wasn't pursued by my, my grandmother. And, and her daughters. One of the most controversial aspects of the investigation was the testimony of Bill Gray, a 70-year-old black janitor at Fayette Jail who corroborated Town Marshal Coleman's version of events that Samuel Bacon had attacked Coleman with an axe and Gray had come to Coleman's aid. Gray would sign an affidavit which was submitted to the FBI, which also stated that Bacon was intoxicated and had to be shot twice by Coleman in order to be subdued. What motivated Gray to testify in support of Coleman is unknown, but Samuel Bacon's grandniece, Lucille Bacon Anderson, was certain of the answer. Robert, Robert Gray testified that he did come with him at, with an axe, and, uh, but he was 70 years old at this time. And not only that, really, a man 70 years old, I, they threatened him, probably his family, and they told him, nigga, if you I, don't I, say what we tell you to say, we gonna kill you. I, I agree with you, but I talked to a, a lady named Andre Gray. That was her mama. Uh, dad and uh, and all things she said she she would get the help Sonny and Fiat and all things she know is the same thing that we know at that time you did what the master told you to do 
you said what he wanted you to say. No. That man lied. He was, he didn't have no choice. He knew that if he hadn't said what that white man told him to say, they was gonna kill him. No, I agree with you. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree with what you said. But when I talked to her, he might would have told them what really happened. That's that's what I was trying to talk to her. They would have told his his he might have told sister. his folks or his, some of his folks what really happened. They escaped. And most old people, right? most old people are deceased anyway. Despite the efforts of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, NAACP, and Bacon's family, the coroner assigned to the case concluded that Town Marshal Coleman had shot Bacon in self-defense. FBI agent Gunzer's report cited Coleman's account of the events that evening, that while he was checking on Bacon in Fayette Jail, Bacon had swung at him with an axe that had been left in his cell. It also cited the affidavit signed by Bill Gray in support of Coleman. After receiving Agent Gunther's report, the Department of Justice concluded there was no evidence of violation of any federal law on part of the arresting officers and town marshal. A grand jury was convened in September 1948 to consider state charges against Coleman, which according to their report, was only brought because of unfavorable publicity in northern Negro newspapers. Here, Gray also appeared before the grand jury to testify in support of Coleman. The grand jury returned a no-true bill and not only exonerated Coleman, but also commended Coleman for the measures he took in the maintenance of law and order. No further criminal charges were ever brought against him. Throughout his career, Special Agent Gunter's case reports would demonstrate a pattern of painting the victim as violent and unpredictable, with the intervention of law enforcement fully justified. In the 1960s, after he retired from the FBI, it would emerge that Gunter worked for the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, a state-sanctioned entity tasked with maintaining segregation and resisting the activities of civil rights workers. Civil rights leader Bob Moses of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee would report Gunter issuing a death threat to him in 1961 for submitting investigative reports to the Department of Justice that contradicted the agent's own official reports. 